Hello and welcome to another edition of the Races Formula E podcast, where we discuss everything electric with motorsport's fastest growing championship. This week, we chat to the all-electric series race director, Scott Elkins. The Californian has been a mainstay of Formula E for the past two and a half seasons as the permanent race director, and is usually a calming voice amid the usual street race mayhem. Scott's got a fascinating history in the sport. He's technical director of both Champ Car and NIMSA. He officiated at most international races, including Formula One, and was a close friend and protege of the must Charlie Whiting. He was also an engineer to Dale Jarrett in NASCAR and continues to be the president of the Motorsport Safety Foundation. In what spare time he must have left, uh, Scott's an avid music fan, a noted guitar technician and repairer, and a connoisseur of West Coast rock music. Joining me to talk Formula E, racing in general, and maybe a little bit more music, is the racist Formula E correspondent, Sam Smith. Sam, with a resume like that, that must be an interesting guy to talk to when you're in the Formula E paddocks of the world. Yeah, very much so. I think uh, it's with such a great range of experience that you touched on there, Andrew. I think a lot of a lot of respect for for Scott's career, and and also the simple fact that he's so so approachable and always makes time to talk. You know, even in pretty stressful situations or you know after a tough race. I think in Formula E. I think he gets so much thrown at him in terms of the fact that it's usually at non-permanent tracks as well. So, yeah, and I think that's, you know, it reflects in the high esteem that a lot of the drivers hold him in as well. You don't always get that in racing. I think, you know, that sometimes uh, you get different personalities as race directors and it doesn't always uh, come off in terms of relationships. So, yeah, always, always enjoy talking to Scott. Excellent. Scott, well, welcome to our podcast. I guess usually we'd be lucky to squeeze you in in your busy schedule, um, but with there no racing going on, what are you up to at the moment? Well, I've been pretty lucky. Um, there's a lot of people sitting at home staring at guitars in the corner and thinking that they need to play them. So honestly, my guitar business has been quite bang- gangbusters. Uh, I've been quite busy doing that, and uh, that along with uh, helping my wife take care of our two-year-old when it's uh, when it's raining, it makes it quite difficult with the stay-at-home rule that we're dealing with. But yeah, it's it's good. It's um, you know, it's a uh, it's a strange, it's a strange point of life for a guy that's used to traveling four and five hundred thousand miles a year on the airplanes of uh, sitting at home. So it's quite strange. Yeah, I think we're all sort of struggling uh, to adjust to that. Uh, but getting back to matters Formula E, we're recording this in the uh, early part of May. Championship says it really wants to get the championship finished by the end of the summer. Um, how realistic is that ambition? I think it's pretty good. I mean, to be honest, it, it's uh, like everything else. It depends on you know countries and regions and cities and counties and everyone deciding what their what their relaxation rules are going to be but it seems like um at least here in america you know everybody's getting fed up with it and so i think there's going to be some political pressure to start opening things up and and getting things you know back going again i I know it's uh it's been super difficult with the economy in a lot of places. So I think I think it's real. I mean, we had a we had some we've had some calls in the last few weeks, and it sounds like everything's moving forward in a way that uh, will make sense. the The difficult part about Formula E is that we start our season so early, um, you know, typically in November, December. So it doesn't leave a lot of time to get things finished. Sam, obviously, uh, you're all over this talking to the championship about the races. What are your feelings? Um, I, you know, I think it, I think it can be. I think it can be finished. Uh, speaking to Jamie, Jamie Regal last week, who's the the CEO of Formula E, you know, he was cautiously optimistic that they could get 
potentially three events in. Um, uh, you know, the most likely would probably be a race, certainly one race in the UK, I think, because uh, about three quarters of the of the teams and majority of the staff uh, come from the UK. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, it, ideally, I think there would be two or three races. There will be a tipping point, of course, of of when that call is made. Uh, I think the, the Grand Prix at, at Red Bull Ring is... Uh, I think I think uh, the FIA have said already that that is going to be a, a kind of a case study in a sense of how things can run behind closed doors. So it, it is a, it is achievable. There's cautious optimism. We all hope, of course, that we can get at least that. Um, but then there's there's also the fact that it may not be achievable at all, and uh, and then we have to look to season seven. Hopefully that doesn't come about. But I think probably the next two or three weeks are quite crucial in, in the decisions that are made through through Formula E and, and the FIA in getting, uh, getting a season six finale in place. Indeed. Uh, Scott, if, if we do go back racing initially, at least it's going to be behind closed doors. How does that affect you and how are you able to um, run a race control or a stewarding room while observing the social distancing rules that are likely to be in place? Yeah, it's going to be really tricky. I mean, as you guys have seen, I'm sure, I mean, our, our race control in Formula E is, is typically full of, you know, upwards of 20 people. So it makes it really, it's going to make it really difficult. I think I think the, the hardest part is going to actually be with, uh, with the marshals and how available marshals are and how we're going to structure, uh, you know, the marshal stations and things like that. I, I think from a race control standpoint, especially the stewards, I mean, we have technology now that I think we could potentially do especially the stewarding side of it i think we could do that remotely um every all the systems that we use um, are very similar systems to formula one and it's and it's things that we could you know access um remotely or if nothing else you know have i think there's a possibility of having some people kind of in the city but maybe not on site and so that would make a uh, transmission of, of data and some things like that a little bit easier but it, yeah it's going to be tricky for sure and i, I know the form that you guys have been working on some serious plans of, of how to get that together and how to put some things in place that um, would allow us to do it. But it, it'll be a massive limitation staff. That's for sure. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's some good points there by Scott. I think, you know, it's, it's going to be people dependent of racing always is of course, but you know, on top of what Scott has said there, you, you've got to factor in that a lot of, a lot of the personnel at, at racetracks are volunteers is right so you've got to make sure that they're okay with actually um being at the track and, and doing their job first of all and then you've got such things as security you know if you i think it's a natural human inclination to to try and um you know have a look at what's going on so there would have to be security at a, at a track as well a lot of remote um, a lot of remote procedures and scenarios, as Scott mentioned there. You know, I, I don't anticipate that there would be a big media presence at the races. It would be very much a, um, uh, you know, a, a sort of need-to-be-there basis in terms of the operational uh, factors in putting the races on. So lots of different scenarios, that, you know, a ton of work for uh, for, for all the guys at Formulary and for, uh, the FIA to do just to get this, uh, just to get an event, up and running but as scott attests i think you know technology will, will play its part and uh, and hopefully we can get at least some some event on yeah, scott and i were talking off air before uh, before you joined us sam about how nascar plans to go back racing in a couple of weeks time and you're saying about how much easier it is to enforce those rules uh, in an oval 
one of the um, solutions that's been put forward is to run some races on permanent tracks. Uh, Scott, do you think that would be uh, would that make it easier for you? What challenges would a permanent uh, circuit present to you? Well, I mean, speaking on what Sam was saying about security, obviously a permanent circuit uh, is much easier to to, to manage. Um, you know, people that are curious and wanting to see what's going on um, in terms of the facility and the way it's fenced and everything like that. Um, that that makes it a much easier. Um, you know, if if we if we were to go to some permanent circuits, um, you know, personally, the biggest thing that's going to affect me is I'm going to have to start dealing with track limits which I've never had to do before with Formula E. So, um, you know, but that'll, that'll, that'll create some different changes for us. I mean, obviously it, um, you know, we can't, there's a lot of circuits that we won't, won't, won't run the full length of the circuit. So there'll be some kind of modification. And so we have to look at those areas and see how, you know, how we modify the circuit, how we change the length, how we, when, when you do do a modification, how does that work in terms of, you know, is there some kind of crossing connector that we have to run? And if so, do we need to add fence and, and block and wall and, you know, do we have to put a curb in to kind of slow the cars down in certain areas? So it's a pretty good challenge, um, to be honest. I mean, we, you know, we've, we've seen a number of times in the years um, when we did our testing at Valencia, because that was a permanent circuit where, you know, as it was a test, we, we didn't really deal with track limits. We didn't really deal with a lot of things. But I, I think that's going to be one of the biggest areas that we're going to have to focus on, which is um, how do we manage um, you know, how do we manage the the runoffs in the corners and things like that? It just, it just makes it more difficult because when there's not a, you know, my job's easy when there are concrete walls, it, it just makes it really easy to say, you can't go, you know, if you go that far, you hit the ball, that's it. So um, it just changes everything dramatically. Yeah. Sam and I watched at Valencia from that grandstand over the course of turn one, you, you'd have been busy for about six weeks trying to adjudicate all the violations that were taking place there. Oh, we're insane. That's, that's why we just don't, we don't do anything. It's just too much work. <laughs> um, You've obviously worked in a, in a lot of different championships uh, as well as Formula E. Um, when racing does resume, there's going to be an unbelievably hectic schedule of and everyone vying to get as many races done, not least to fulfil whatever contractual obligations they have with their TV partnerships. Can you envisage a situation where they start talk, trying to work together, share events, and maybe run multiple different events on the same bill? You know, I think I think with the fact that you know the the acceptance that it's possible that we have to run events uh, behind closed doors. I think that opens things up uh, a little bit better. Um, but, you know, it is, it is incredibly complicated because, and, and honestly, from an operational standpoint, I don't think it would be that difficult. But there are a number of, uh, you know, commercial areas that come into play that I think will, would hamper some kind of an idea of, uh, of series running together. Just, just as an example, I mean, everybody's got a different TV deal. So, you know, you're looking at, you know, if it's behind closed doors and you're going to have to broadcast it, then you're looking at, you know, three or four different production companies, um, you know, trying to, you know, and and I'm sure Sam knows and everybody knows. I mean, if you're a TV producer, you want your camera in a certain location and one guy thinks it's more important to have it in this location than that location. And just it seems like logistically it would be really complicated to do that. But. Um, you know, it, it could work. I mean, IndyCar and NASCAR here in the States have agreed to do a, a joint race um, at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway where NASCAR runs on the oval and, and IndyCar is going to run on the road course. So, um, you know, they've figured it out. They're lucky. They both have the same, you know, same TV partner. So um, that makes what I was talking about a little bit easier. But it's, um, you know, it. I think it could work, but I think, you know, like I said, it's the commercial aspects of it that make it more complicated. Yeah, I, th I think Scott's right. I think it'd be really hard to um, 
to put on in terms of a in terms of a bill because not not just the commercial aspects that Scott mentioned but also just the the ethos of what the the championship's about um the fact that we're going to more permanent circuits as well you know and that the Formula E gets things done quickly it's a one day event okay one on a one on a bit with a shakedown or whatever you what have you but i think the essence of the quick fire racing of a one day event even at a permanent permanent facility would make it very difficult and and also there's the fact you know that a lot of people are saying well formula e is going to going to lose its dna of racing in city centers but but when you break down the the calendar the, actually the majority of tracks are either semi-permanent or are actually within you know municipal parks or they're within like the hermanos rodriguez circuit is within a, a park essentially or a complex so when you strip it down there's really only paris I think Rome and, and probably New York, although I think you could get away with doing a behind closed doors race in New York potentially. But going back to the original point, I think actually doing a, a multi-bill um, program with Formula E, I, I, I can't see it happening. And I, I just think it would um, it would be too much of a clash on commercial and, and like I said, a, a sort of a, a branding ethos to make, to, to sort of, protect Formula E being such a, a unique uh, unique discipline in motorsport. I think you've got to factor the various egos in play as well. I mean, who's going to get the support paddock and where the garages are allocated and all of those things. You know, We're all feeling nice and friendly and in a cooperative mood now, but once we get into those paddocks and those things start kicking in, I, yeah, I think the reality of it, sadly, uh, it's going to be that that couldn't happen, and we and we are just going to have multiple calendar congestion with everything on all at the same time, which I think will be brilliant for like July and a complete nightmare from then onwards. Well, the the track record as well, Andy, isn't great, is it? Formula E's clashes, obviously, fam- famously in in season three, which you know had an outcome for the championship, and then and then you know more recently there's been multiple clashes, which. You know, they 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 eventually got sorted out by by hooker by crook. But yeah, I I think just reiterating what was said last week, I think by Graham Stoker that the FIA definitely needs to sort of get a bit more of a sort of cohesion and the championships as well. They uh, they need to get a bit more cohesion in in how they work in a more of a cooperative manner. I think with with the present situation. Uh, Scott, we had uh, Lucas Degrassi on this podcast a couple of weeks ago. Now I think it was, um, and obviously he's been studying a lot into the effects of uh, air pollution and um, you know in a, in a way he is looking at what uh, the impact of COVID-19 is going to be not just on motorsport but on uh, the motor industry itself. Uh, what are your thoughts about what the new normal is likely to be when, when we do go back? Wow it's a it's a very tricky question especially trying to compare my answer to Lucas's that's uh he's he's much more professorial than I am so um you know, I, I think I think what's interesting is that, you know, we've seen firsthand um, the developments of manufacturers and what's going on in towards of, of moving towards EVs, um, whether it be through Formula E or or anything else. And I, I think what's happening now is going to cause cause manufacturer boards to really think about the future and think about how they're going to approach things. I mean, the fact of the matter is, and I'm sure it's, I'm sure it's happened, you know, where you guys are as well, but um, you know, automobile showrooms have been closed here in California and they're, they're actually just going to start opening up again this Saturday. I just read an article this morning. So, you know, car sales are down and so they're, they're going to have to re 
think how they're approaching everything. And so it may very well accelerate, um, you know, EV technology transitioning to, you know, to the road cars and more people looking at EVs. Um, you know, the stay at home aspect of it, you know, it's funny if you think about it in kind of a weird way, if you have an EV, you have the ability to power your vehicle from home. You know, you don't have to go to a petrol station and fill up and you don't have to go outside. So, you know, a lot of things, a lot of things are going to change. I think Lucas is probably right in terms of how it's going to, how it's going to affect everything. But, um, you know, from an electric standpoint, I only see it as positive because I think uh, there'll be more of a focus on it. Yeah, we've seen in the UK, I think a 97% decrease in car sales, but of the car sales that have taken place, the top two sellers are the Tesla Model 3 and the Jaguar I-Pace. So, yeah, it's um, it's clearly having a, a, an impact and one that I think will be a lasting one. I hope so. I hope so, because that's that's really what we need, you know. I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's funny that, uh, you know, you say that the car sales are down. Uh, you know, LA is famous for um the smog that we have here and there you know been a number of days where i've you know gone out to the market to run some errands for my wife and there's an area of where i can actually see downtown los angeles when i'm driving around and there were a couple of days where i could actually see downtown los angeles it wasn't it wasn't covered up by a haze so it's a refreshing thought to think that uh, that could become normal scott do you think um Again, going back to the human nature thing, sort of creatures of habit in a way. You know, admittedly, there's not been something of this scale before, but but often, even when you get a recession, um, people go back or companies go back to old habits. So, do you see that being the the key issue there, and just the fact that people will try and strive for a a similar lifestyle to what they've been uh, lifestyle to what they've been used to before? I don't know. I mean, it it's um, it's you know, what you're talking about is human nature and it's really, really difficult to, to guess that. And by no means do I have uh, the education or the knowledge to, to make any kind of decisions, but as a personal, you know, as a personal thing, there's a lot of things that um, have changed, you know, over the eight weeks that I've been home with my wife and I, that I think, you know, I think honestly, we're going to stick to what we've been doing for the last eight weeks and not go back to some of the areas that we've done. I mean, it's funny. I, I was doing our budgets uh, for the end of the month of April, and I realized that um, we had only eaten, uh, you know, eaten uh, something other than a meal cooked at home twice. And and normally we do that, you know, two or three times a week. And um, so, you know, that part of our life has changed dramatically where we're cooking meals at home and spending more time together. And I, I think that, you know, that's for sure going to stay with us. And I think that's going to, ha- you know, I think a lot of people, it's hard to say again, you know, I, I do think habits that have been found, uh, literally found during during the stay at home um, may stick, um, but I think eventually, yeah, we're all creatures of habit. At some point, we'll all go back to doing things normally. But how how, how large corporations react, I'm not sure because I think they're going to be um, they're going to be making you know uh, decisions that have them afraid of this happening again. I mean, we're looking at you know at least in America. We're looking at uh, not that big of a period of time between the housing crisis in 2008 and then now that's what's happening now. So that's, you know, in the span of a decade, we've had two major economic impacts. So, um, you know, I would hope I would hope people do things differently. And especially when it comes to the environment, I hope people consider that dramatically. I think um, one of the good things to have come out of this, and there aren't necessarily millions, but the notion of people being able to work effectively remotely and not have to be, you know, burning carbon and traveling to do 
a lot of things, you know, for instance, you know, we're all doing this from three different locations in the world and touch wood, it all seems to be working fine. And I think we've expended quite a lot of carbon uh, on unnecessary meetings in the past and maybe that will change. Oh, I hope so. I mean, that's that's the, one of the biggest things is that, you know, we've all seen the memes that said, oh, well, I guess this meeting could have been done by email, you know, and that I, I think a lot of people are thinking that way and hopefully that happens because it's a, you know, it, it's a huge change. I mean, we just had a uh, an FE, a sporting working group meeting yesterday, and it was, you know, we had 22 or 23 different people on a, on a video conference, and it worked great. I mean, it was perfect. It was, you know, there was absolutely no need for me to fly to Geneva. So it, um, I hope I hope we do and are able to adapt to things like that because um, it would make a huge difference in the planet, you know. Um, at the top of the show, we introduced you as a protege of Charlie Whiting, um, someone that both Sam and I, I'm sure, have uh, got very fond memories of. Um, can you just talk a little bit about the impact he, he had on you and your career? Yeah. Um, it, uh, you know, I've, I've said it a number of times. I mean, and I, it's, uh, sorry, it's a little weird. I'm actually getting a little emotional now. It's been a while since I've um, talked about Charlie. But, uh, yeah, I mean, he, he and I actually met uh, back in, uh, I believe it was two, 2005 or 2006. He, he invited me to come and join the technical working group for Formula One because we were building building a new champ car here in the States. And, you know, since Formula One builds a new car every year and it was the first time we had done it, you know, for 100 years or whatever, um, he invited me to do that. And that started, you know, that started a relationship where we became, you know, started becoming really close. And whenever he would come to the States to do track inspections, um, for the tracks here a lot of times he'd call me and i'd go meet him and we'd go do the inspections together and spend some time and then you know as as things progressed and and when herbie blesh um you know decided to to focus on motorcycles and and do something else you know there was a a guy from the fia replaced him and then when you know that guy kind of moved on um you know i was working with formula e and I just kind of sent Charlie a kind of a, just a joking, half serious note that was like, "Hey, if you need some help, um, you know, I've already got the shirts, so uh, you know, I can I can come and help you." And he replied back and was like, "Hey, mate, you know, good thing you got the shirts; it may come in handy." And so that that ended up, you know, me being his deputy for uh, 2018. I think I ended up doing 17 or 18 races with him. Um, and then, you know, in 19, I ended up doing I think 14 or something like that. Um, you know, and is that right? I have my dates off. I can't remember. Um, anyway, for two years, we spent, you know, and at the racetrack, uh, you know, if everybody knows Charlie, Charlie didn't tend to go out a lot. And so we would have dinner together every night. And we became really close. And, and I learned a lot from him. Um, you know, honestly, it's I learned as much about being a person and a human being as I did um, as I did about about working in race control and, and working as a racer. And a big part of of Charlie's um success was the person that he was um being able to talk to people and having a calming presence and and um you know being very very uh having a very high integrity and and those types of things you know are, are things that everybody i think can learn and um you know for me especially moving into the fia world from from america and and kind of being in a lot of cases the token american um with the fia and at events it, it meant a big deal and and the fact that he was willing to you know go to dinner with me every night of a formula one grand prix weekend and and talk about things like that um were, were really were really important you know i mean he and i even personally we had um we had a lot of things in common because he 
you know, had children later in life and, and I have a two-year-old son, um, later in life. And so, you know, it was just a lot of stuff that we had together and it was, um, he was just a, he was a super special person. Um, even, even away from motorsport, he was just a super special person. And that's, uh, I, I'm, I'm grateful, um, more than anything at the time I had to spend on him. It was, uh, I was lucky and it was very unique. Yeah, he was a, was a wonderful character, Charlie. And uh, Sam, you must have uh, met him a few times. Yeah, yeah, very lucky to, and I, you know, I, the the great thing about him, and and I checked actually with Scott ahead of this that the the, the term protege was suitable, and it very much was, and I and I can actually relate a little bit to to what Scott's saying there because trying to speak to officials, as you know, Andy, in the in the white heat of a, a race weekend, isn't easy, and actually the few very few people make it easier to have a chat and answer your questions and uh i can see that kind of ethic in uh in what scott does and yeah i got some f- great memories actually to to keep it a bit californian here scott i remember a great conversation about his uh his love of chaparral uh jim hall cars in the uh in the 60s because he just loved those cars and um i remember him telling me in great detail about when he was a teenager watching the boac thousand kilometer race at brand hatch and uh you know him trying to get phil hill's autograph and stuff like that so yeah some some great memories and you know a proper racer as we all know yeah no it's uh he's you can't say enough about how sorely he's missed and, and how you know even even within the fia how how the fia changed dramatically when he uh when he was lost because of, of how much of an effect he had on everything so yeah it's um you know i i i you know I've said it. I said it on Twitter or something like that a while back. I think on the anniversary of his of his passing was that I, you know, I, um, I try to be like him every day, and it's a, it's a hard job because he, he was so incredible. Is uh, it? Is it? You know, it, it's a good goal to strive for. Absolutely. Scott, were you offered the, the opportunity to to take that role after Charlie's passing? Um, <laughs> The hardest question I've ever had to answer. I wasn't actually. Um, I was. Uh, I was in line for it, uh, for sure. Uh, but the in in the light of keeping things consistent, um, it was decided that it was more important for me to stay in Formula E um, because I think Formula E, you know, within the FIA, uh, is viewed is viewed as strongly as Formula One in a lot of ways. So, um, yeah, I was. Uh, I was told to stay put, so that's what I'm doing, and it's awesome. Um, carrying on on that vein, obviously, with Formula E being exclusively a, a street racing series and, and, and unique in that, have you sort of had to rewrite the rule book in that way that you you're race direct? Uh, not really. I mean, there's just some things that you know. And again, just keep keeping on to the topic of of Charlie. I mean, what what I try to bring to the street racing is, you know, obviously I've had some experience with it, um, in IndyCar and champ car back in the day, um, here in the States. But I think what we try to do is because the circuits are so unique and they are, um, you know, they're not typical of permanent circuits. I think, you know, we just try to, to go into an event weekend of knowing that there's going to be something we have to adjust and something we have to change. And, um, you know, overall trying to use common sense, uh, in terms of the decisions that we make and, and, you know, holding safety above all and number one at all times, but at least using some common sense in the things we do. And that, again, that's something I got from Charlie, uh, you know, of, of spending time with him and trying to make adjustments on the fly. And so 
that's uh, that's the biggest part of it. And you know, and I'm and I'm sure Sam, being at the races, you've you've heard about this. But I mean, many many times we'll go into a driver's briefing on Friday evening and have a conversation about the circuit or have a conversation about something related to that particular event. And we have a conversation and we make a decision and we all decide on it together and, and move forward the next day with the, you know, with the, um, with the practice qualifying and race sessions. So it's, you know, it, I think you have to be a little bit flexible with the circuits because they are also unique and also different. Yeah. I, you know, that, that flexibility is, is evident and in, in lots of different um, scenarios which we've seen particularly that period I think at the start of Gen 2 when there were some pretty fraught races to say the least and um, you know that particular season started off with that fairly difficult race in Diria when we had the uh, the the rivers running down a couple of portions of the new track there and uh, you know difficulty with the drainage and you know I think the the race was at one point it looked like it was seriously threatened I'm sure Scott will maybe give a bit more on that in a second but you know there were other aspects of the the racing which made things very difficult for lots of lots of reasons and you know we saw multiple red flags we saw we saw I think three in succession or four in succession I think the most visual one was was burn when um some drivers got overly overly emotional there um so a lot a lot to contend with but generally you know, once the adrenaline's warmed off through the drivers or or, or officials or whatever, you you do get a consensus of of positivity in the championship. And, and and again, you don't get that in every championship. There's a lot of vested interests in sport, in motorsport in particular. But in Formula E, you know, there's there's a lid on it and a you know a, a sort of a, a bigger picture vibe, which I think is is pretty cool actually. Thanks for bringing up the red flag, Sam. That's cool. Yeah, sorry, Scott. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that yeah. was. I mean, that was a tough season. I mean that that first race in Saudi Arabia was. Uh, man, I don't even. I don't even think a nightmare would describe it um, of how how it was. I mean, that was the last thing any of us expected. Right? Was massive downpours in the middle of the desert, and um, it just uh, it made it tough. And yeah, you, there was there was for sure a period of time where we didn't think we were going to get it to work because we had one we had one area of the track that um we couldn't get rid of the water we just literally couldn't get rid of the water and thankfully um there were some local guys that came up with a plan of uh you know they literally dug a hole and created a created a pump to where we could just get the water out of the way so we could complete the race and um you know obviously going back there this year um there were massive changes that were made and and unfortunately, even this year, the massive changes that they made to the drainage systems caused us to have to, you know, we had to move a wall to cover up a manhole cover because uh, we were having trouble with the with the tarmac there. So it's a those are you know perfect examples of the challenges that we have um, at every event. And, you know, the good thing is, is that we've made some changes going forward. And Sam, I know you've recognized this is that, you know, the, the circuit layouts changed quite dramatically this year uh, from, you know, from season six to season five in terms of having tight chicanes and trying to just get rid of areas that would for sure cause problems, you know, um, that's that. And that was, that was the real crux of the red flags. I mean, we had a couple of areas that the track was blocked and regardless, I think of what type of racing it was, you know, um, having a, a part of the track like that where it gets a hundred percent blockage, there's, there's nothing else you can do. I mean, in the, in the area of safety, you have to stop everything uh, to get it cleaned up and get going again. So yeah, that was a tough season. Um, it was a really difficult, approach and and but i hope you know hopefully at the end like you say sam hopefully at the end i think everybody realizes what's going on and, and can appreciate it and, and we kind of move forward but it's it's super unique in the formula e paddock where um 
and I hesitate to say this because I, I, I think it's going to sound a little bit uh, a little bit cheesy, but I mean, there's a bit of a family atmosphere, I think, in the paddock. Um, you know, where we all we all eat lunch together in the same place, and we all see everyone quite often. And honestly, I think it helps with the um, you know with with the driver um, with the driver battles a little bit, where you know you can do things on track, and then unfortunately, knowing that you know the next time you see the guy might be in the in the catering area in front of everybody. So I think it kind of leans towards having them kind of work things out sometimes. Um, it's beautiful in four, in four years, I've never, I've never had to get involved in between two drivers about anything. It seems like everybody sorts it out themselves. So that's, that's pretty unique in Formula E. So you, you say you've got a, a pretty good relationship with the drivers, obviously. Sam alluded to that uh, incident in Bern and, uh, I, th- I don't think many of them covered themselves, or a couple of them really cover themselves in glory uh, in their sort of reaction to how the grid was reset there. Yeah, I mean that was super tricky. I mean it's um, it's one of those things where uh, at the time the the process that we had involved um, the deputy race director Niels, uh, who was the unfortunate recipient of the uh, emotional driver uh, barrage there. Um, you know, he would go out and help get the grid sorted um, once we determined what the starting was. And, and unfortunately, you know, that was a particular case. And I think I've said it before. And I think I've said it to you, Sam. You know, guys were upset because they cut the chicane and gained positions on the racetrack <laughs> and felt like they were they were supposed to be able to keep those. And so, you know, it was kind of strange to me that, you know, they felt like they got through it. But unfortunately, they got through it by a nefarious method, which was they drove around the accident and cut the chicane, which would have been a penalty anyway. So, um, you know, even even if we had done something differently, the guys that were upset were still going to be upset. So uh, it was uh, it was just a tricky it was just tricky, you know, and, and I felt bad for Niels. But again, you know, as I've said before, I mean, they're racing drivers and they're passionate about what they do. And it's all about the competition. So, you know, a lot of guys, um, and you both have seen it a hundred times. I mean, guys act differently when they have the helmet on, you know, um, Alex Sims is a perfect example of, you know, without the helmet on, you wouldn't think the guy's a race car driver. Um, but when he puts his helmet on, he's a monster. And so these guys come in and pull their helmets off and just, you know, kind of lost their minds a little bit. And that, you know, Hey, that, that's, that's racing. That's, if you don't have that passion, you don't have a great sport, you know? So, yeah, I reckon uh, Alex Sims is channeling a uh, Bobby Rahal from the eighties. I just see a massive correlation between those guys. Bobby Rahal looks like an accountant, race driver. Alex Sims, I think I, I, I think I coined him the power sliding professor yeah. earlier this year. Sure. You remember that that slide he did in qualifying? <laughs> so, oh, sure. uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Oh my gosh, it was incredible. The whole, all the race control lost their minds when it happened. <laughs> yeah great stuff i think uh yeah i think i think from from the point of view of the drivers uh, you know, that incident uh, you know what i noticed on that incident is if you if you look at it closely one of the drivers kind of leading uh, well you know everyone knows who it was it was it was lucas degrassi sort of leading the uh the verbal charge shall we say and, and he sort of looks and <laughs> notices there's a camera there so then you think, well, is 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 it a bit is it is it a bit of pantomime involved? Who knows? But yeah, I, the the good thing about it though, coming back to Scott's original point, is you know after after a chat and a meeting and, and a discussion, it's kind of forgotten about and, and people get on with it. You know, there there, there isn't any 
um, that, that there isn't any bitterness or any, as far as I know, any kind of um, holding grudges. So that, I think that's the way to go, isn't it? In sport, you, you don't hold grudges and, and, you, and you get on with it. Yeah, I think life's, life's too short um, to hold grudges. And, and again, like I said, you know, I mean, I think it's really difficult to to be in front of everyone in the paddock, you know, at lunchtime <laughs> and and to have something bad go down. So I think that's a very unique aspect of Formula E and it really um, it really helps. But, you know, I, I like I like I wouldn't say we have strong relationships, um, you know, but we have open relationships. And, and Sam, you pointed that out. But that's something that's super important to me is that we have the ability to talk through things and we'll, it, you know, we won't, won't always agree, but just having the kind of, you know, to use a horrible phrase to have that like open door policy, um, you know, and I've said it before, I mean, all the drivers have the ability to, to reach out to me on WhatsApp or, or email or whatever. And I, I like the fact that we can do that and talk about things and it actually helps. I mean, there's a number of times where we've gone to a new circuit, um, you know, and guys will send me videos of them in the simulator uh, to talk about a particular chicane or, or a particular part of the track. So that openness, um, yet again, I'll, I'll call back to it is another thing, you know, learning that from Charlie, um, that was a big thing that he had with his paddock, um, and had relationships where everybody knew they could reach out to him. And so, you know, for me, that's, that's the only way to do business. There was a worry that when, um, formerly started embracing the big manufacturers, they might lose a little bit of that sort of familial spirit and, and openness but you think it's absolutely as strong now as it, as it ever was yeah I, I feel like it's it's definitely still there i mean the pressure in the paddock obviously ratchets up every year with more people involved and, and the pressures that are involved and you know manufacturers taking over teams um but i still see i still see the camaraderie um you know among the drivers uh, i still see the you know that that's the thing i mean man you you you, you go you go to lunch uh, and I'm sorry, I keep bringing back catering, but that's just kind of a, a communal area that we all go to. Um, but you know, when you go to lunch and you see, you see DaCosta sitting down, having lunch, talking with uh, Masa, you know, and it's just, just two completely different guys that you wouldn't, that you wouldn't think would come together. And yeah. Okay. So they have Portuguese to, you know, they can speak together, but still, you know, it's just, it's just, you know, two different, you know, young up and comer and, and the champion, you know, the Formula One champion back together. It's just, it's just cool to see stuff like that, and and it's still happening even though, you know, the pressures are there. And yeah, of course, the teams sit together and talk. But I, I, you still see drivers, you still see engineers, team principals, you still see a lot of intermingling. That, um, you know, I and I don't say this in a negative way, but you don't ever see that in the Formula One paddock. You know, I think I think the drivers actually enjoy it. You know, uh, professional race drivers, they understand their commercial responsibilities or to their partners, and and they do that um yeah very very diligently but they're doing something which they you know is an extension of their hobby isn't it at the end of the day they they started karting or they started at a very early age and they they love their sport i'm pretty sure all of them do some of them are at different stages of their career so they've got different outlooks on things but the pressure's always there it's a super it's a super professional environment but there are genuine friendships in in Formula E. You know, um, you know Mitch Evans is good good mates with uh, Lotterer, uh, and there are other there are other dynamics in there, and and they all get on, and they all you know they all socialise together or or what have you. So it's a little bit of a throwback. It reminds me a little bit, and uh, you know Scott Scott might pick up on this. It reminds me a little bit of that kind of late nineties IndyCar stroke early Champ Car World Series uh, sorry Champ Car series sort of oh three, oh four time. I know Scott you started in oh four, but 
it seemed to have that sort of atmosphere uh, in place there. And, you know, I think it's all the healthier for it. Yeah, I, it's funny you say that. I've often um, compared Formula E to that era of um, of champ car racing. It's, it's funny, even from the standpoint of, you know, the commercial activities that happen at a Formula E race with manufacturers bringing cars and letting the public drive them and things like that. I've, I've many times referenced that era uh, as a comparison. So it's interesting that you say that because I, I believe it. Scott, we're getting towards the end now, but uh, we couldn't let you go without talking about music a little bit. Um, a lot of racing drivers tend to, how should we phrase it, have slightly dodgy tastes in music. Is there, what do you make of that? Is there anyone in the paddock you've been able to bond with about that? Uh, honestly, I haven't. Um, I've I've had some conversations and we've talked through some things. I'm I'm unfortunately, uh, my taste my taste in music is varied. I, I I honestly do truly enjoy everything. Um, it's you know if you looked at my playlist, there's uh grateful dead and then the next thing i listened to was travis scott so it's quite weird um but i'm definitely i struggle as an american i guess maybe uh, of dealing with a lot of the um as you call it dodgy uh kind of like edm and kind of you know the kind of electro type of stuff um you know i think our i think our 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 ej that plays after the races is a cool guy and i like him a lot and i I dig his outfit and um but i just don't i don't dig his music it's just not my scene um it's a i'm I'm a throwback big time um i i actually like music that's beyond my you know before my generation um because that's the way i i grew up so uh but yeah i don't know man i don't know uh i think i think that's all i can say i don't want to comment anymore (laughs) i don't get myself no I know exactly what you mean. There was uh, when we used to go to Putrajaya to avoid the uh, the monsoon. The, everything was shunted forward by a couple of hours. So the first practice session would start at six a.m. And I remember going out to the first corner to watch the cars coming through there, and I found myself a nice spot, and the sun was just creeping over the horizon. And about five past six, the EJ cranked on and started blasting these tunes out. And it was just absolutely the last thing I needed at that point in time in the morning. Just ruined the moment, didn't it? I reckon. Uh, I reckon Sam Bird's a Phil Collins fan. I think he's got a bit, uh, some hidden Phil Collins albums. But I tell you what, talking, you know, I, you know, I can't claim to be a massive deadhead like uh, like Scott, but um, I reckon Brendan Hartley's probably about as close as you get to somebody who's into into some decent music. I know that he's he's. I think he's quite a decent guitar player himself, actually, Scott. So oh, really? Maybe the next time, yeah, maybe the next time we're you know in reality rather than virtual, you could have a chat with Brendan because uh, I remember having a chat with him at Le Mans a few years ago about about his guitars and I think he sort of picked it up a little bit. So uh, maybe somebody, maybe somebody to bond with there. I'd, I'd go that route rather than the uh, Sam Bird, Phil Collins route. Definitely. Yeah. Brendan's into his sort of new metal, um, new wave punk sort of stuff. Uh, yeah. 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 Well, yeah. That, uh, that's better than EDM. So I, I, I'm in, I'll, I'll look him up. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Well, thank you very much for joining us, Scott. Um, hopefully we'll be back racing as soon as possible. And thank you all out there for listening. And uh, hopefully you'll be uh, reading what Sam's writing on our site, looking at his ranking of all the Formula E drivers ever. I know a couple of them have been in contact with you, picking bones out of it, Sam. So uh, kudos yeah, to you I for ju- putting your chin on the line there. I just deferred them to Scott so he can sort them all out. So, yeah. Great, great. It'll give um, me something to do. No problem. Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> 
And uh, don't forget to check out all the latest news on the website at race.com and all our other lovely podcasts from Formula One, MotoGP and the Bring Back V10s uh, one which looks back at classic stories. Thank you very much and goodbye.